Good morning, Grace Redeemer. It's great to see you all this morning, and uh, what a blessed day it is. It's beautiful outside. It's a great time to live in Texas. You know, it's cold up in the Northeast, and this is what makes me so pleased to be a Texan uh, when this time of year comes around. Uh, so just love the fall uh, in Texas. It's a great time uh, to be here. Well, we're going to be continuing our study in the Sermon on the Mount this morning in a message that I'm calling a Prayer in the Golden Rule. <clears throat> and this is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. Uh, before we go to the Lord uh, in a message about prayer, why don't we pray? Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, for this message. We thank you, Lord, for these uh, verses. And Lord, we just ask your, your grace uh, again today as we continue this study on the Sermon on the Mount and realize uh, just how difficult, if not impossible, your standards are to adhere to. Lord, that you would uh, give us something today that... Uh, we can really hang on to, Lord, and apply to our lives, and Lord, make part of how we live our Christian lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, I've told you before uh, that I'm a runner, and when I was in high school, I used to run uh, plenty of races, and uh, I've run a whole lot of races uh, since. And I've learned through experience kind of how to pace myself uh, in a race. Uh, at the starting line, a lot of times runners get really excited and they, they get all jacked up and they go running out really fast and uh, they spend all of their energy in the first uh, couple miles and uh, they run out of oxygen, they don't drink enough fluid and uh, you know, they cramp up and uh, really have a hard time. Uh, you can tell them, you can tell the rookies, it's like the tortoise and the hare, right? The hare goes tearing off and uh, not able to finish the race well. Uh, I used to be one of those rookies and so I, I know it when I see it. Uh, but now uh, I've learned how to pace myself, how to go out a little bit slower. And if I've paced myself well, uh, then I get the holy, sanctified blessing of passing them in the last mile or so as they throw up on the side of the road. And so uh, that's the great blessing that I get from uh, learning of how to have paced myself. Uh, I think sometimes the Christian life can be like that, right? We, we get really excited when we're new believers and we start out uh, really fast and uh, when you're a new believer, you just have all this wonder and joy and excitement about all the great things that the Lord is doing in your life and everything that he's teaching you, and you're so excited to tell other people about those things too. Uh, and new believers are really eager to learn and, and just you know, share it with somebody. And that's a really, really good thing. It's really great to see a new and excited believer uh, who's just starting out. But sometimes, though, a new believer is not quite prepared when adversity comes his way. And <clears throat> to continue the running metaphor, sometimes they can run out of oxygen and they can start to cramp up. So they need tools to help them finish well in the Christian life. But we, of course, are not immune from that either. We were new believers at one time, and many of us are not new believers anymore. Uh, but as we uh, continue to mature uh, and get older, we, we've all learned from experience that life uh, has a way sometimes of sucking the life uh, or the li sucking the oxygen out of life, you know, and we can get uh, sometimes caught up in, in some of the difficulties of life. And we have to learn, too, how to keep our oxygen supply up uh, so that we can finish well. And what Jesus was doing in these verses was, was teaching us that the, the oxygen that we need to have a vital Christian life is prayer. We have to have that if we're going to continue to progress in the Christian life. And we have to understand that Jesus didn't just drop these verses out of the clear blue sky on prayer as we come to this passage. Uh, they are very much related to what has gone on before in the Sermon on the Mount. 
uh, Jesus challenged them to be different, to be like uh, citizen, uh, kingdom citizens, uh, to exhibit all these qualities uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. And we've learned that these standards are impossible to adhere to. Uh, be uh, poor in spirit, mourn your sin, be meek, uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness, be pure in heart, be merciful, uh, uh, also uh, be a peacemaker, be salt and light, uh, have your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, don't harbor even a malicious thought toward your neighbor, uh, don't lust, don't swear falsely, don't plot revenge, give fast and pray and do it with, a, with the right attitudes, don't worry uh, don't judge others with self-righteousness. Examine yourself for all sin. That's a heavy load, isn't it? That's a heavy load that Jesus has dropped on us so far in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and the Sermon on the Mount is discouraging in that way because we understand that you know, we can't do that. We can't do all that Jesus asked us to do. The standards are just too high. But Jesus knows that we can't be perfect, and that's why uh, he came, and that's why he died on a cross for our sins, to make up for all that was lacking for us, since we're unacceptable to God in our sinful selves. And so that's why uh, we have to rely on Jesus as our Savior to get us into heaven. But when we believed, he gave us his Holy Spirit. And now we have that incredible tool, the Holy Spirit living inside of us that now enables us to do things that we formerly found impossible. We have the power of God living inside of us. And so uh, we, of course, should be praying for material things, but even more so as it relates to the Sermon on the Mount, he's asking for us to rely on him for these spiritual things, for spiritual growth, to be able uh, to do things that we were formerly unable to do. And so what we see as we have studied this Sermon on the Mount is that if we're going to mature uh, into uh, all that Jesus would have us be, uh, then prayer is the enabling factor. Uh, he has called us here to supernatural standards. And so what we need is supernatural assistance, and that's where prayer comes in. <clears throat> and so we'll see today that we have an obligation uh, to ask God, to pray to him, and we'll also see that if we do, then he is faithful uh, and he promises to answer. And we'll learn about the nature of God in contrast to the nature of our sinful selves. And finally, we'll see that since we understand how we want God to treat us, then we should go about treating others the same way. And that's the golden rule. Uh, so let's start with our obligation to go to the Lord in prayer. And we'll look at it in verses uh, 7 and 8. Uh, ask. <clears throat> and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. And so we see uh, these amazing verses about prayer. But we would ask ourselves, before we even talk about how to pray effectively, uh, I would ask, who can pray effectively? And uh, I think that uh, when we talk about that, <clears throat> we're talking about uh, things that we have faith in. Like when I sit in a chair, I sit in it because I believe I have faith that it's going to hold me up. When I get on an airplane, I have faith that that plane is going to take me to my destination. And when I pray, it's because I have faith in God uh, who is going to hear and answer my prayers. Uh, so who can pray effectively? Here's the first kind of person who can pray effectively. Those who believe that he lives we see that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he, comes, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder 
of those who seek him. So we have to believe that he lives. We have to believe that he rewards. We also, those who believe God hears us, are people who pray effectively. Jeremiah 22 and 23. Am I a God who is only close at hand, says the Lord? Can anyone hide from me in a secret place? Am I not everywhere in all the earth? So God's omniscience and God's omnipresence is stressed here. He can hear each one of us individually because he's everywhere. He knows everything. So those who believe God hears us. Those who believe that God is powerful to answer. Luke chapter 1, 37, for nothing is impossible with God. Psalm 119, 91, for all things are God's servants. So those who believe that God is powerful to answer are faithful people. Those who believe that God is good to answer. Psalm 23, surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So those who believe that God is good to answer. Those who believe that it is his his will to answer our prayers. Luke 12, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Those who trust God's promises can have their prayers answered. We see this in Isaiah chapter 41, uh, verse 10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not look anxiously about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And also those who worship God, who are not in their sin. John 9, 31. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. So we see all of these qualities of people who have faith, right? People who have faith, uh, they believe that he lives, they believe that he's a rewarder, that he hears us, that he's powerful, that he's good, that it is will to answer prayer. But those, there are those who trust him and they are people who are not in their sin but have received Jesus Christ as their savior and have been forgiven their sins. God hears those people. <clears throat> when Molly was going through cancer treatments, I remember <clears throat> talking to someone who I knew to be an atheist, and he told me, I'm praying for Molly. And I said, really? Uh, who are you praying to? And he said, I don't know, the universe? Like in a real questioning tone, like he had no idea who he was praying to. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I'm not sure that God hears those kinds of prayers. Uh, God is certainly sovereign, and he can answer that prayer if he wants to, uh, but I sure wouldn't want to rely on the prayer of unbelievers, right? Uh, believers, he hears. But unbelievers, this verse says clearly in John 9, he doesn't hear. So I'm glad that there are lots of believers who were play, praying for Molly when she was going uh, through those treatments. It's a believer's relationship with God that gives him that access, and that is the relationship that unbelievers simply don't have with God the Father. So he who comes uh, to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And so we prove that we believe that he is and that he is a rewarder uh, by acknowledging and recognizing our own helplessness and his great love for us, that he is powerful and good and that it's his will to answer prayer. And when we trust him and believe in him, uh, well, those are the kind of people who have their prayers answered. So that's who can pray effectively. Now we would ask how we can pray effectively. And so we come then to verses seven and eight, uh, ask, seek, and knock. 
And each one of these words in uh, the Greek is uh, what they call a present imperative. So an imperative, you know, is a, it's a command, right? We have to obey that command. But the present aspect of it means that it's something that we continue to do. It's not just a one-time thing, uh, like when you're uh, told to close the door or something like that. That's a one-time thing. Uh, a present imperative means that we keep on uh, seeking, we keep on asking, we keep on knocking. It's a continual thing. Uh, so ask just means a simple request, independence on God. Uh, we recognize our need and we acknowledge that only God can fulfill that need. Uh, and so after we've asked, we see that there is this progression of intensity. Uh, first we ask and then we seek. Uh, seeking is the word that we see in Matthew chapter 6, verses 30, verse 33. Same ver uh, word that is used there. Uh, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So that's not a one-time seeking, right? That's an over and over, repetitive, continuous seeking. It, it, it shows urgency, need, and desire. And then knocking is even one step up from that. It shows even more urgency and persistence that says that you will not leave until you have received what you came for. And so we ask, seek, and knock. In the parallel passage uh, of, this, uh, of this story, of uh, this Sermon on the Mount, in Luke chapter 11, uh, we have the same verses, ask, seek, and knock. Uh, but just uh, before he told, him, uh, told them to ask, seek, and knock, he told them a parable, which you will recognize. Uh, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. But I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And so what we see there is that persistence is key. And if this friend will get up because of his persistence, how much more will God, who loves us way more than a friend does, give us what we need if we will persist? Now, I know that many of you have been praying for a long time uh, for many things, for finances, for your health, for wayward children, many other things that you may be praying for. And uh, sometimes we get discouraged when those prayers aren't answered. And I get discouraged too when prayers aren't answered, and sometimes we're tempted to give up, but Jesus encouraged us here to keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, be persistent. We have a God who delights to answer our prayers. So if we ask, God makes certain promises. So let's look at those promises. And we're right back to verses seven and eight again, uh, where we started. Uh, so we see that uh, it will be given to you you will find, it will be opened to you. Those are promises that we can take to the bank from God. And not only that, he individualizes these promises, right? He says, for everyone, singular, who, who re asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. And so that is a promise that God makes to everyone who will ask, seek, and knock. And that implies a personal relationship that God wants to have with each and every one of us. And for believers, God binds himself to answer our prayers. 
Sometimes it doesn't feel like it though, right? Sometimes in our life we, we uh, have been praying for something for a long time and it just doesn't seem like God is going to ever answer this prayer. And that can be discouraging. Uh, perhaps we're not praying as persistently as, as these verses imply that we are to ask and seek and knock. Uh, God promises an answer to those who diligently seek after him. And so if our prayers lack passion, if they lack fervency, I wonder if maybe that could be part of the problem sometimes. Sometimes we're asking God to care about something that maybe we're not showing that we even care about or that we believe that he cares about or that we believe he would want to answer or that we can trust him to answer. And Sometimes I've found myself praying with no passion or fervency. Uh, maybe I, I'm praying because I just don't know what else to do. It's a last resort. Uh, I pray because I have to pray, but not because I really believe that God's going to answer that prayer, right? We've all prayed prayers like that sometimes. Why would God answer a prayer like that, right? He wants us to pray expectantly. He wants us to believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who come to him. And so maybe our prayers aren't answered sometimes because they lack the proper fervency and passion that God wants from us. You know, God doesn't automatically answer prayer the way we want him to answer it either. You know, there are times when we ask God for something and he says no, or he says wait, or he says now's just not the right time. Uh, but, and, and sometimes when he says that, the answer is for our benefit. Uh, we know that God is going to answer prayers in the way uh, that will most benefit us and most glorify him. Uh, maybe what we don't necessarily want right now, but ultimately for our highest good and for his glory. He answers our prayers in the way that we would ask them if we knew everything that God knows. <clears throat> when I was interviewing to be a pastor, I had a couple of churches that offered me uh, the position, and I wanted to be a pastor so badly that I was absolutely blind to red flags that I should definitely have seen, and I thank God for a sanctified wife who was able to show me some of the red flags that uh, I was not seeing. At one church, there was a, this extremely domineering uh, senior, past, or senior elder who was going to make my life miserable, uh, and I couldn't see it. Molly could definitely see it, and in retrospect, now I can see it. Uh, there was another church that uh, wanted me to move my family to New Jersey uh, to be a pastor of that church, which was no fault of theirs. The church happened to be in New Jersey, so it uh, would have been hard to do from here. Uh, but, you know, I didn't realize as, uh, as I was going through that interviewing process that my kids were now uh, in high school and how hard this move was going to be on them and that, you know, really deep down inside, I didn't have it in me either to, to make that move again. I like being a Texan, and I didn't realize how much I did until I was thinking uh, about that. But uh, there was a, a time when I wanted those things so badly, and uh, I just didn't take into account all the hardship that was going to come. Uh, but I'm so thankful now that God didn't answer my prayers the way I was praying them at that time, right? Because that was not what God had for me. Uh, he was protecting me from bad situations, and he was actually preparing me uh, for Grace Redeemer Community Church, and I'm so thankful that it worked out the way uh, it did. And as I think about it now, uh, in retrospect, God answered my prayers exactly the way I would have then if I knew everything that God knows, and that's the way God answers our prayers. Uh, it's because he's a good and generous God who wants what's best for us. And for our family, he gave us abundantly more than we could ever have asked or prayed for. Well, Jesus illustrated 
that very point in verses 9 through 11. This is about the nature of a father to answer. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Well, many of us, if not most of us here, are fathers, and, but this verse applies equally to mothers as well. Uh, who among us would be so cruel and so deceptive to uh, give the child of ours exactly the opposite of what we know that they need and want? And the answer, of course, is that none of us will. And we're evil. Uh, Jesus didn't mince words here. This is the Greek word porneia, which we've seen before in the Sermon on the Mount. It means wicked, bad, degenerate, every thought about Uh, Anything is tainted by our sinful nature. Uh, Our first thought is always about ourselves. It's always tainted by some form of selfishness. And yet, uh, even in our sinful fallen condition, we know how to provide for our children, and we will provide for our children. So contrast God with us as as, uh, God the Father and us as earthly parents. This is another one of Jesus's lesser to greater arguments, right? If we, being sinful and and bad and degenerate people here, know how to give these gifts to our children, how much more will our heavenly Father, who is perfect, who lives in the heavens and has never had a selfish thought, all thoughts are in love toward other people, uh, and and how much more will a God like that, who is perfect in every way, uh, how much more will he do for his children? In Luke chapter 15, Uh, Jesus told a parable that we know of as the parable of the prodigal son. The younger brother asked his father to give him his share of the inheritance while his father was alive. That was absolutely scandalous to want the father's money more than he wanted the father himself. And yet, the father in love complied and gave that younger son his share of the inheritance. And he went off, of course, to a foreign country and uh, through loose living, uh, squandered every penny that he had and he ended up tending to pigs, which of course, uh, to a Jew, was the worst thing you could ever do. It's an unclean animal. And as he's doing that, and he's starving, he says to himself, what am I doing here? I know what I'll do. I'll get up and I'll go to my father and I'll say, "Uh, forgive me, father, and please accept me and treat me as one of your hired hands. And so off he goes. And the father, uh, we learn, had been waiting every day uh, out by the road, waiting and watching for his son uh, to hopefully one day return. And one day he sees his son on the horizon and he hikes up his robe and he goes running down the road looking uh, for his son. And when he gets there, he wraps his arms around him and kisses him and loves him and hugs him. And before the son can even get out this feeble apology that he had planned, uh, the father is already showering him in the royal robe and putting the the ring on him and slaughtering the fatted calf for this party that they're going to have in his honor. And that's the kind of love that the father has for us. And that's how much he wants to provide for us. But sometimes I wonder if our prayer lives show that we are not quite convinced that he is a good father. Maybe we don't trust him enough to provide good things for us. Or maybe we don't think that he cares enough about this little prayer that we're praying to answer it. Well, I think the story of the prodigal son proves otherwise. He is a good father, and he wants to provide for us. But maybe you didn't come from a home where you had a good father who was a loving and affirming provider. Uh, Maybe you came from uh, a home where your father was violent and abusive, or he was uncaring and neglectful or even absent 
Maybe the language of a father doesn't quite resonate with you or conjure up uh, these good memories in your mind. Well, if that's true for you, uh, my encouragement is that your heavenly father is not like your earthly father at all. Uh, He is full of love and compassion for us, and he wants to give us good things. But even if you had a loving and caring father, uh, he still can't compare to your perfect heavenly father who wants to bless us more than we can ever know and wants us to enter into this relationship with him through prayer. Jesus called him Abba. That's a term of familiarity. It's a term of love. It's a term that implies personal relationship. It's a relationship that he wants to have with us. So do we know him this way? Do we have that relationship with him? Can we call him Abba, Father? He wants us to come to us in prayer. He wants us to have this personal relationship with him, this give and take. He wants to give us good things, and and more important than all of it is that he wants us to grow in our spiritual lives so that we will become more Christ-like. And he wants us, because of how he knows and we know how he wants to treat, how we want to be treated by him, he wants us to treat others the same way. And that's how we come to the golden rule, and that's the link that binds the golden rule to these passages on prayer. So let's read the golden rule, verse 12. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. You know, I thought that this was called the golden rule because it's the gold standard of Christian conduct. I I thought that's where the term came from, but studying this week, I learned that the term was actually uh, given to this uh, rule because of a Roman emperor by the name of uh, Alexander Severus who uh, reigned from A.D. 222 to A.D. 235. And he was not a Christian, but he was so enamored with this Christian ethic of Jesus's that he had it uh, inscribed in gold and put in his bedchamber. And so that's been called the golden rule ever since. So I didn't know that. Uh, it's also been called, the golden rule has been called uh, the Mount Everest of Christian ethics. It's the highest of the height uh, that we can ever reach. Uh, Even leaders like Gandhi, who certainly are not Christians, don't believe that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior, admired and respected Jesus's ethics. Well, this law had been stated negatively many times in the past. Uh, For example, uh, there was the Rabbi Hillel who said, What is hateful to yourself, do to no other. Uh, The book of Tobit, which is one of the intertestamental books of the Apocrypha, written uh, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it says, what thou thyself hatest, to no man do. And Confucius said, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. And there are various examples of this negative form of the rule in Greek and Roman literature. Uh, But when you think about it, The negative form of this rule actually requires that we do nothing, right? Uh, If we don't kill anybody, we have adhered to the rule negatively. Uh, If we don't do anything, really, uh, then we have actually complied with the rule. We we certainly don't want people to kill us, so we don't kill other people, and so we're in full compliance. Uh, But that is the negative form of the rule. It doesn't require of us anything, but the thing that's so radical Uh, is that this rule has been stated positively for the first time by Jesus. Do unto others as you want done for you. So no one had ever put it in positive form before, and that's what makes this rule so revolutionary. This positive statement requires us to act, 
Uh, it requires us to treat others with love and compassion rather than just not doing them harm. Uh, you're all familiar with the great Christian company Nike, right? Yeah, a very great Christian company. Their slogan was at one time, do something, right? And that's what the, great, the, the golden rule requires of us. We have to do something. The thing that we would most want done for ourselves, this we do to others. We pay forward the love that God has shown to us by showing it to others. Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. The priest and the Levite passed by the beaten man on the side of the road, right? And the Good Samaritan comes along. And if he were to obey the negative form of this, uh, this rule, uh, don't do unto others what you don't want done to you, he would have been perfectly uh, justified in just walking past this man, right? He, he's not the one who gave him the beating and left him in that condition, uh, and he wasn't obligated to do anything positively. But when you look at the positive form of the rule, do unto others as you would have done to you, well then, now the Good Samaritan would be required to act. He would want someone to stop his bleeding, bandage his wounds, take him someplace where he could recuperate from his injuries, and that's just what the Good Samaritan did. And obviously, the difference between the negative form of the rule and the positive form of the rule is enormous, right? It puts a burden on us. And so we ask ourselves the question then, what will this cost us? Well, it depends on how strictly what we want to adhere to the rule, right? We could spend all day, uh, every day, thinking about what we would want to have done for us and then do that to other people. Uh, that will cost us time, and that will cost us money. Uh, and there's not enough time in the day to, to uh, take care of ourselves and to take care of others. So if we're going to follow this rule, then self has to die. Uh, we don't worry about ourselves anymore. And if we're doing unto others as we would want to have done to us and others are doing the same to us, we don't have to worry about ourselves because other people are meeting our needs and we can meet other people's needs. And uh, that is really the principle that's at work here. And when we think about what will this gain for us, uh, well, we think about what we learned a couple of weeks ago. Remember, we, we saw already in the Sermon on the Mount, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in to steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so this is just a further outworking of that principle. It's another way that our righteousness can exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. So we ask ourselves then, how can we possibly follow this? Only by understanding God's great love for us. That's the only way that we could ever follow these rules. God sent his son to die on a cross for us in our place so that we could have eternal life. Uh, that's the golden rule in action. Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Uh, Jesus did for us what he would want done for him if he were only a man and not the savior of the world, right? He would want a savior to come and save him and die on a cross for his sins, but since he is the savior of the world, he has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. That's radical love. In Matthew 22, a lawyer asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. And so we see that the second commandment is dependent on the first. We will never be able to love our neighbor as ourselves and, and do to others as we would have them do to us unless we deeply and profoundly love God first.
Now, of course, none of us has ever been able to keep these two commandments perfectly. Uh, Just like the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, this commandment should drive us to our knees in gratitude for what Jesus has done for us, making up in us what we lack. And it should also give us renewed desire, determination, and energy to look for opportunities to do unto others as we would have done to us. It should cause us to ask, seek, and knock for the power of the Holy Spirit uh, to be the kingdom citizens that Jesus called us to be. And so we ask, we seek, we knock, uh, and we pray uh, always that God would do a work in our lives so that we might do a work in other people's lives. So let's think about a couple of applications. Uh, The first one is this. We're talking about prayer in the first verses here in verses 7 through 11. And so my first application is that we ought to pray expectantly. Our daughter Allie was born in August, uh, and she was born in New Jersey. And uh, in New Jersey, the winters are long, uh, and so you don't leave the house with a newborn unless you absolutely have to, because you have to pack them up uh, uh, in all kinds of... of, uh, warm weather gear and you have to put them in the car seat and you have to deal with the cold and the snow that's outside and lug them into the car and it's just a gigantic hassle. Uh, So you don't leave the house too much. But during her second winter, she was starting to watch television shows, right? She was watching Blue's Clues and Sesame Street and whatever other uh, children's shows that there were on TV at the time and she was learning how to talk. And then April came around of her second year, and so uh, the winter breaks, and we take her out in her stroller, and uh, she had words, and she had vision, and she was seeing everything for the first time, and she would go, tree, flower, car, everything she saw she was seeing for the first time, and she was just amazed, and it would take us like two hours to get around the block because she had to point out every single thing that she saw, but that's life when you're excited and you're seeing things for the first time with this wonder and amazement. Do we remember when we first became Christians, everything was new and wondrous in the same way, right? Our our spiritual lives grew by leaps and bounds. God was answering prayer and we were learning so much and we were getting so excited and every new discovery brought amazement. But as we, as we get more familiar with things, you know, we, th- things start to become familiar to us. Things start to lose their awe. Uh, and that goes for birds and trees as well as it goes for God and his word. And so do we still have that excitement that we had when we first believed? Uh, if it's not, if we don't have it, it's probably not because God has changed, right? God doesn't change. It's probably because we have changed and God has become familiar to us uh, and, and familiar things, uh, they, they tend to, to grow old in our minds. And so uh, we sometimes show uh, that God has become familiar to us because we fail to pray expectantly like God wants us to pray. Maybe we haven't seen him answer a prayer for a while. Maybe it's been, we've been too long praying this prayer and we just tend to give up. Uh, and so we've become complacent sometimes in our relationship with God and uh, we have to expect that God is going to answer our prayers. Uh, I have a little sticky note on my computer monitor at home to remind me. It says, uh, pray expectantly. Uh, Expect God to do great things. And I have to remind myself of that all the time because sometimes we can forget uh, that God is an amazing God and he can do amazing things. Uh, So we have to strengthen our relationship with him through prayer. And I doubt there's a single person in here, if I asked, who would raise their hands if I said, are you completely satisfied with your prayer life? I doubt a single hand would go up. It's a discipline. 
And it's a discipline that we can all work on, and the benefits are beyond any benefits that any earthly discipline can achieve. Uh, So why would we ignore such a thing like that? So we need to pray expectantly. And the second thing we need to do is to pay it forward. That's really what the golden rule is when you think about it. Think about how gracious God is to provide for us. And then, after you've thought about that, uh, then think about the ways you might be able to pay it forward. Paying it forward means simply just taking what God has done for you and then doing it for someone else. Uh, Love people the way you want to be loved. Uh, Better yet, love people the way they want to be loved. That should really be our standard. Uh, Gary Chapman wrote a book that many of you are familiar with called The Five Love Languages, and in it he said there are basically five ways that people want to be loved, and he put everything under those five categories, and he called them the love languages. And those are words of affirmation, acts of service, receiving gifts, quality time, physical touch, Uh, Maybe it is true that all things fall under those categories. Think about the people you love. Think about the people you know. Uh, Think maybe which one of these is their love language and treat them that way, the way that they want to be loved. In your relationship with your spouse, with your kids, with your parents, with your coworkers, with your neighbors, with store clerks, with waiters and waitresses, think about what they might need in a particular moment and be the one to provide that for them. That shows the love of Christ. Try to be more people-oriented than task-oriented. Anybody have a problem with that? Uh, Sometimes I can be more task-oriented than people-oriented, and we have to remember that God wants us to engage in relationships with other people. But this takes sacrifice, and it takes a heart that has been changed by the radical love of Jesus Christ. And so I ask, have we? Have we been changed? Let's pray. Lord God, Again, you just floor us with the standards that you have set for us in the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, as we think about uh, our prayer lives, Lord, may we really, really know that you are a God who loves us and who is powerful and who is good and who wants to answer our prayers, Lord. And and may we want that relationship with you. Uh, Why we ignore it uh, is, is a mystery to us, Lord. And I just pray that we would... Dig deeper, Lord. If we're ever going to grow spiritually the way you want us to, prayer is going to be a requirement. And Lord, help us to pay it forward. Help us to love others like you loved us, Lord. We will be so attractive to the world if we could reflect the love of you uh, onto others, Lord. We thank you for your many blessings, Lord. We thank you for this church, and we thank you for your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.